0: Welcome to Indie Matters,
1: the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis, down in Las Vegas.
0: On this episode of Indie Matters, I talk with an artist and an attendee about this year's Renegade Burning Man, which was canceled for the second year in a row, but still saw thousands head out to the Black Rock Desert earlier this month
1: for the unofficial event. After that, reporter Zach Bright talks to us about his recent story on inmate firefighters who have helped fight the numerous fires that have blanketed Nevada in smoke this summer but are paid less than $25 a day.
0: At the end of the show, reporter Howard Stutz joins me in part one of two of a story about the long and tumultuous history between the Culinary Union and Station Casinos. You can catch part two next week. The Black Rock Desert features a flat plain known as the Playa that lies empty most of the year. But when the massive Burning Man festival happens at the end of summer, it can draw more than 70,000 people from all over the world. It started out as a sort of counterculture gathering focused on art, self-expression, and community, and has come to feature art ranging from vehicles that look straight out of Mad Max to giant temples. There's also the namesake of the festival, The Man, a massive effigy that is burned to the ground at the end of the week. There is no money at Burning Man and everything is bartered for. Many people describe their time in this pop-up community as a transformative experience unlike anything in the world. But, concerns about COVID have sidelined the festival, both in 2020 and this year. That didn't stop tens of thousands of people from heading up to the playa to participate in an unsanctioned renegade Burning Man, though. A notably smaller and different event than it has been in the past. The people that did go gathered as campers, but without the formal organization's involvement and without the amenities and ticketing of the past. The Bureau of Land Management, which oversees the land that Burning Man takes place on, did have some temporary restrictions on things such as the size of art that people could bring out to the playa. Eric Brooks has been going to Burning Man since 2013. He's helped on art pieces and volunteered at the event. After the official Burning Man was canceled this year, he decided to still attend the Renegade Burning Man, also called Rogue Burning Man or simply Plan B.
2: So the biggest difference for me was not working. I normally work five to seven shifts, so everybody in our camp works. And most of my camp works at Gate, and then I help on builds. So I'm used to being out there and being really active and being around things and being part of the, more of the organization. And I was only out there for two nights, so two and a half days. It was, even for that short amount of time, it was strange to wake up and not have something I needed to go do.
0: Jerry Snyder is an attorney in Reno by day, and by night he makes large art installations for Burning Man. While Brooks, who we just heard from, decided to go to the Renegade Burn, Snyder decided to stay home this year. Do you feel, like, uh, disappointed that you're not going to be able to show this art that you've been working on, or, or do you think you'll... Still and we'll do it practice? next year. Yeah, that, that's kind of the idea, is just... You know, no yeah, words.
3: yeah. I mean, I'm sort of disappointed the event isn't happening, but come on, there's a lot more problems in the world than, than Burning Man not happening.
0: While Snyder isn't going to get to show his art this year, he did tell me about what he had planned for the future, and some of his past projects and the themes they revolve around.
3: I find that they usually seem to be revolving around some sort of lightheartedly religious theme. I play with notions of spirituality and faith and things like that. But I mean in terms of sort of whatever tickles my fancy. One year I made a giant ichthyosaur puppet. One year I made a giant rosary. This year I'm I was I have an honorarium grant to make a piece called The Midnight Museum of that one night at Burning Man, which is a series of sort of stained glass lanterns depicting scenes from from previous Burning mats.
0: Brooks, who attended the Renegade Burn, talked about the differences that he saw, which mainly included the lack of large art pieces, some of which Snyder, who we just heard from, had worked on in the past. The biggest
2: difference I saw, and in talking with everyone, without a doubt, the two biggest things were art and porta-potties. And especially during the day, that was the thing to do with We'd go check out art, and there was very, very little in comparison. The biggest piece was one of the smallest pieces at a normal burn.
0: Did you kind of feel that lack of organization when you're out there? Like you said, there was less porta potties. Well, yeah, yeah, there were no porta
2: potties. So, our, our camp had one, and we locked it because people started using it. There was definitely lots of urine everywhere because the next day you can see where people had peed, and there was talk about the feces and where it was, and there's a map of it, and then the crews that cleaned it up, all that stuff. There's a porta potty that was left out that became a really big deal. That was just left by a camp, and now it's become a legal matter. It's crazy how that stuff blows up. But overall, it was. I thought it was. It was way mellower than I ever would have been, imagined it to be. And no gunshots. People drove crazy fast in the day, but for the most part, out away from people.
0: Brooks said that he camped with about 15 other people and next to their camp was the Drone Camp, a group of people who did an art installation using light-up drones in the sky, creating huge shapes. Brooks said that this was the best installation he saw this year. While the art maybe wasn't what it had been in previous years, there was some change that made the Renegade Burn unique. I think, in a way, the social interaction was better this
2: year because there weren't those other things to do. So when we went out as a camp with five or six of us riding our bikes around, Instead of going out to art, since there wasn't any, we just went to find bars. And they were hard to find for sure because the organization, although it was pretty fantastic, it was not easy to find places. When I went to find people, I couldn't find anyone I planned on finding. But when we ended up finding a bar to be at, we stayed for quite a bit longer than we normally would have and really talked with the people that were there, either running it or other people that were there enjoying it. So I'd learn more about people in two days than I normally would learn about in a week during a normal burn. I think having no expectations is the best way to experience a big event like Burning Man. So it was just a different experience. In
0: 2019, there was estimated to be over 70,000 people at Burning Man. This year, the estimate was closer to 20,000. Whether it's 70,000 or 20,000, that number of people means that there is a large sheriff presence in the Black Rock Desert. And even with no official event, there was sheriff's presence this year in the desert as well. I think the law enforcement that was there tried to stay out of the way until they were doing something and then
2: they were very present. So they weren't walking around like they normally would at a burn. The rangers, there were a few rangers around, but there wasn't the ranger presence either. I think it was a big difference. But when something did happen, there were eight cop cars and tons of lights. And whoever got targeted, for whatever reason, it was a, a crackdown crackdown.
0: I asked both Snyder and Brooks if they had expected Burning Man to get canceled this year. I was a little
3: surprised. I wouldn't say I was worried because it's, it's, it's an amazing privilege to go. But if it doesn't happen, it's, it's out of my control. I'm not going to lose sleep. I thought they would. I, I was a little surprised, though. I, I have every confidence that given the information they had, they made a, a, a prudent decision. I think most most people seem to be focused on making something next year.
2: I expected it to be downplayed to where the organization would still have its footprint, but it would be regulated somehow to maybe people only in the country or people with vaccination cards. So I was a little surprised when it got canceled outright for the second year in a row, which then leads a really good question the pandemic a year from now could still be just like it is now, where it's strong enough to not have people from all over the world coming and getting together. There were several things that I read of people saying, Hey, uh, my campmates got COVID and I got COVID and I'm not going, but they decided they're still going to go. Okay. So there were people out there apparently who could have been spreading things around. But again, it wasn't like a normal Burning Man where you're crowded. So that even though it was a lot of people, it was still really spread out. I, I never felt uncomfortable. And except for the people in my camp, I was never really within three or four feet away. It was, it was very spread out.
0: With the spread out nature of the event, Brooks mentioned earlier that there was less art. But it wasn't only less people that led to less art, but also that there were greater restrictions from the Bureau of Land Management.
2: There was a bunch of restrictions that BLM had. Art had to be either super tiny, like six feet, or it had to be a shade structure. So they limited people from, from bringing art out. Originally, there was going to be some big pieces out there.
0: Snyder talks about the effort that goes into some of those big art pieces and how some of the pieces take several dozen people to work
3: on them. Making a big project happen is like 1% artistic energy and 99% spreadsheets. It's just like any other project. It's a lot of like motivating people and, and making sure we have people have the right tools and they're trained. And it's not like being in a studio with okay. a chisel and a block of wood making something. It's, it's hard. It's a lot of work. It's usually, it's usually pretty tedious work. So it's got to be something that you're excited enough about to get through hours of, of kind of mindless drudgery handwork.
0: While many of the large spectacles like sculptures and art installations were not physically out in the desert this year, Burning Man did officially host a digital version of their event, complete with virtual reality experiences and 3D renderings of some of the art, all available online. I asked Brooks and Snyder what they thought of the virtual Burning Man.
2: People who aren't able to go to it now that they're doing the virtual can have a really good experience and understand more of what the culture is about. I support it, even though I don't. Supported through participation so much.
3: I'm in front of a computer all day, so it didn't seem very appealing to to sort of participate virtually. And I'm not I'm not super tech savvy, so it, we had talked about trying to put together a virtual version of the project, and and that didn't get very far. I, I think it's I think it's neat, and a lot of friends I who I've talked to have, have enjoyed it. Yeah, I I think it's a cool idea. There is this techie sort of subculture or, or a, a huge techie influence of Burning Man, and I think it's it's really appropriate to have this. So it, it does seem like kind of a natural out growth of a lot of the threads of, of playa culture.
0: Speaking of that techie influence, there is this perception that Burning Man is just a bunch of tech bros from Silicon Valley with tons of money that get to go out and party. Brooks talks about that and that he didn't notice as much of that culture this year at the Renegade Burn.
2: Normally in that seven day span of a Burning Man, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday are pretty mellow. Thursday starts feeling weird. And then Friday and Saturday, it's the LA bros that come up and just want to party and get drunk and have sex and do whatever so that's i didn't feel that influx at all so maybe it happened after i was gone i reckon the entire experience is to visiting a foreign city and you can find what you want in any foreign city and if you want to find the more debaucherous things you can find it there's also a a Jewish temple that's set up, normally there's AA meetings. I mean, there's a million things that you can do. There's a kid's camp. So, And that's, I think, a big misconception. If you just get drunk and party, you can do that anywhere. There's better things to do at Burning Man than getting drunk and partying. I had a very poor opinion of Burning Man when I moved to Reno in 2013. It's a much bigger package than the stereotypical drugs and sex.
0: Since the event wasn't officially sanctioned, there was no ticket to buy. The people that were out there went out there without having to pay for tickets or parking passes, something that has created a perception of only rich people go out to Burning Man. This year to Brooks felt more inclusive in some ways. It's nice
2: because people who are curious about the burn could have an experience that's in the ballpark. It's definitely much different, but they can have that experience without the $400 ticket and the parking pass and everything else that goes along with it. So the expense can be pretty exorbitant. It's it's interesting that it's an, it's such an inclusive event, but financially it's not inclusive at all. It really does limit a lot of people. People put tons and tons of money just for the basic ability to be able to get there. It's, it's not inclusive in that regard. So I think it would be nice to have, I don't know how that would be mitigated either. It's super complicated, like everything once it gets big.
0: Here's what Snyder had to say about going to the event, even though he didn't get to go to the Renegade Burn this year.
3: I really like going there and doing something impossibly hard with a group of people who just want to do this, a very cool thing. It's not, it's not one thing. It's not the sculptures. It's not the performances. It's not, it's the whole thing is a piece of art about community and about social change and about lots of things. When you're out there, you just want it to mean something because it does seem It seems so weirdly consequential. And I think art can kind of do that in a lot of ways too. Like it's, you can't really put your finger on what it is. The reason you make art is because, well, it's a lot easier to write an essay. If you could just put what you're trying to do in 1500 words, then that'd be a lot easier than building a thing. And so I really, I like that sort of framework. It's sort of community as art.
0: Snyder said, while the last two Burning Mans didn't happen for him, he hopes that next year will be the best one yet. As for this year, Plan B became Plan A and the Renegade Burn, while missing some of the spectacle and scale of the art on the playa, still had some sense of community to be found. Whenever I talk to anyone about Burning Man, they always say you have to be there and see it to really understand. Burning Man is a massive undertaking that shakes up the northern Nevada area for a few weeks every summer. You can find a lot of Burning Man art around Reno, and even in Las Vegas too, and there are events put on by Burning Man throughout the year in Northern Nevada. Nevada and many other states allow incarcerated individuals to join fire crews during the wildfire season paying them a salary and granting time off their sentence. Inmate firefighters often do much of the same work of other firefighters, but for a fraction of the pay, only $24 a day. Several state elected officials say that this is not only wrong, but a form of modern day enslavement, echoing a growing chorus of critics opposed to low wages for inmates. Reporter Zach Bright has been reporting on inmate firefighters during this past fire season and joined me to talk more about payment issues. So I am here with intern Zach Wright. And by the time you hear this, it'll be former intern Zach Wright. Zach, you're finishing up with us. We're talking about inmate firefighters. So Zach, when we're talking about inmate firefighters, are we talking about just any inmate or, or who are we talking about? Who are these, these firefighters that are incarcerated?
4: The people who are part of the program have to meet certain qualifications. So these people are incarcerated people in minimum security facilities, and they have to be within two years of their release to be eligible to work as a firefighter. So right now, currently, 185 are assigned to fight fires of the 740 who make up the conservation crews for the Division of Forestry.
0: And the big issue right now is payment, right? They're, they're not making very much money. How much money are they making right now per day?
4: Yeah, in my conversations with the Division of Forestry, the state forester had told me that they're making $24 a day for each day of work that they do. Yeah.
0: And compared to a normal firefighter, obviously, that's quite a bit less.
4: Right. Yeah. That's actually an hour of training that a state employed firefighter makes on average.
0: So when we're talking about this, this issue of, of incarcerated firefighters making less money, is this something that people see as kind of a moral failing within the system? Or is this more of a, like are the inmates themselves asking for more pay or, or where's the where is kind of the fight starting?
4: Yeah, I know a number of state officials have voiced their concerns and complaints about this. The previous lieutenant governor, Kate Marshall, had said that this was a form of enslavement.
5: It is my view that $2.23 a day is a form of enslavement. And we don't do that in this country. And so I would like us to look at other solutions, what other states are doing with respect to facilitating a robust firefighting
4: force. She said that back in June during this audit committee meeting where they had talked a little bit about pay, and she actually thought that there should be a second audit looking into how a pay raise could happen and what that could kind of look like.
5: My basic concern is that I would really be interested if the audit division could do a second audit into alternative solutions or more comprehensive methods of dealing with firefighting. To say that we are at high risk right now in the West is an understatement. One of the issues that I see in this report is that you are paying inmates $2.23 a day to put their life at risk.
3: For the record, Casey Casey, State Forester Fire Warden, I agree with you. I don't know where the $2.23 a day came from. When I became State Forester, we were paying $2.10 a day. Prior to that, it was a dollar a day. For project work, we do pay um, more for firefighting forces. They get paid by the hour, 24 hours a day. So it's $24 a day for their time on fire. In addition to um, that time, they get time off their sentence. So we also pay, it's up to 15 um, credits off of their sentence, which can be up to, I think it's 30 or 45 days um, off their sentence. That's part of the reason we get people coming through this program is that time off the sentence.
0: When we're talking about a pay raise and what that could look like, how would that be implemented? Is that from the state level or are we, are we talking about, you know, the prisons themselves?
4: What it comes down to, according to the state forester, is that the budget needs to be expanded for the Division of Forestry and for the Department of Corrections because they work in tandem to create this inmate firefighting program, but that budget needs to go up. Right now, she said they're looking to make small incremental raises, but that wouldn't be that much because she says they're working in the current constraints of the budget for this year. So they have to wait until the next cycle comes around to really request more money.
0: Are the inmates that are fighting these fires, are they volunteering for this position? Is this something that they're kind of like being asked to do or where where do they fall?
4: It's a voluntary opportunity. Not only do they make the $24 a day per day that they work, but they also get a certain amount of time off reduced from their sentence based on how many days that they do end up working. So those are kinds of, kind of the incentives which draws some inmates in. But like I said, state officials like the former lieutenant governor believe that that pay raise or that pay should be higher.
5: Whether or not someone's incarcerated, that is a human life. Other states, and this is what I would like a second audit to look into, in addition to early release, have looked into recruitment programs for post-incarcerated persons. The fact that someone has that training while they are incarcerated does not mean they can use that training once they have been released from incarceration due to the fact that they may not, under their parole, be allowed to leave the county. They may not be able to clear their record, and so therefore may not be able to work on a firefighting line because they have a record.
0: Yeah, I mean, are, are these, these are firefighters that are on the front lines risking a lot of times their safety. How much of the state's firefighting force, you know, are these inmates?
4: Yeah, so I believe that number is 30% of the Division of Forestry's firefighting force. But I believe overall, that's 1% of the state's entire firefighting force made up of local forces, state level forces and national forces. The program goes back to the 50s. And it's been in place for a while. And the idea behind it was to create the system where inmates can learn work skills and supposedly have an easier transition upon their release back into society. But the problem is that a lot of inmates don't end up being eligible for a lot of firefighting jobs out there. And that's another concern too, that there's not a clear pipeline for uh, inmate firefighters to become full-time firefighters, if that's something they wanted to pursue.
0: Yeah. What, what is the number of inmate firefighters that have transitioned?
4: So I can't actually speak to the numbers because the Department of Corrections did not get back to me on that. But from the audit committee meeting, I believe the state forester had mentioned that there was one person that they hired. So one individual that they hired. That's not to say that other firefighting forces couldn't have hired their own inmates, but I don't know of any beyond that
0: and we're talking about the pay right we're talking about increasing their pay is this something that looks likely like they're going to be able to next budget cycle be able to funnel money towards the department of corrections to increase inmate firefighter pay or is this something that they haven't really discussed yet
4: it's certainly a possibility i just don't think it's a top issue right now when i had reached out to the governor's office i reached out first in august and they did not respond to my request for comment. And they finally actually got back to me after the story had gone up saying that they'll give me more information. So, still waiting on that to see if a second audit is happening like the Lieutenant Governor talked about. That goes through the governor's office. That's his responsibility. And so far, that doesn't seem like something that they've been planning.
0: If you'd like to learn more about inmate firefighters, you can read Zach's full story on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. The Culinary Union in Las Vegas is one of the largest unions in the U.S., spanning tens of thousands of hospitality workers across many of Nevada's most prominent hotels. With Nevada so reliant on tourism, this gives the union even more power, and while many of the casinos on and off the Strip have contracts with the Culinary Union, one of the major holdouts is Station Casinos, owned and operated by the Fertitta family. The union and station casinos has been at odds with each other for years, and while litigation and threats from both sides continues to this day, there doesn't seem to be a clear legal solution and neither side seems to want to budge. Howard Stutz, our gaming reporter, joins me to break down the history of the long feud between the two groups. This is part one of two of our conversation. You can hear the second part of that on next week's show. All right. And so I am here with our gaming reporter, Howard Stutz. Howard has recently written a massive piece going over the, the long and tumultuous history between Stations Casino and Culinary Workers Union 226. And this has spanned years and years going back to I think 2008. Is that right, Howard?
6: Well, it, it depends who you're talking to. This actually started when Pre-station casinos, this dispute between the Culinary Union and station casinos over organizing their workforce, about 13,000 workers here in Las Vegas, Southern Nevada, actually started in 1993 when the Culinary organized the Santa Fe Casino, which is a small Northwest Casino off US 95. They fought it for seven years, fought the union, and then Santa Fe sold the casino to station casinos for about $206 million, the union thought, oh, okay, well, now we have a new owner. Now we'll just renegotiate a contract with them. Station said, no, all these workers have to reapply. Basically, they, they were all fired <laughs> have to reapply for their jobs. And Station Casinos was expanded, Red Rock Resort, Green Valley Ranch Resort. They'd opened the Aliante Station in North Las Vegas. Then they went private through this big buyout with Colony Capital, put a lot of debt on the company, and that's that's kind of where it started. But two thousand eight, two
0: thousand nine. So this this dispute is about the Culinary Union wanting to unionize workers at Stations Casino, uh, which I think is one of the a few major casino companies in Las Vegas that is not like part of uh, doesn't have some union impact.
6: They have. There's they, they, they are some unions, smaller unions, maybe with like carpenters or. Teamsters or back of the house type workforce. The biggest bulk of the workforce for station casinos is the non-gaming restaurant employees, the hotel employees, people that work the front desk, clean the rooms, manage those hotels, manage the convention space provide the the food and beverage service to the convention the restaurant workers so think of those that's the bulk of the workforce it's about 13,000 employees when you look at all the station casinos properties within the Las Vegas valley and other than Las Vegas Sands corporation which does not have a union contract with the culinary that's probably the largest so that's why it's become a a real focal point for the union has been trying to organize station casinos over all these years now.
0: Is the union trying to organize against these other companies that also don't have union ties?
6: They kind of stopped on the sands after about 2003. Sands basically pays their workers better than the union wages, provides a better health and welfare package, better than the union. So the union wasn't going to be able to organize sands, and that was that. Now, as we all know, Las Vegas Sands is selling their Las Vegas holdings for about $6.25 billion. We may see a, a union effort there. We don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens. But mm-hmm. right now, the focus for the culinary in the, off, in the years when they are not renegotiating their contracts with the strip properties, that's like every five years, their focus is, uh, has been trying to organize uh, the station casinos. And mm-hmm. it's been going on for a long time.
0: And so, do the workers at Station's Casino? Are they interested in this? Does Station's Casino offer as good of a package as the Culinary Union is offering? Or I mean, that seems like it's probably the reason that they're they're doing this,
6: right? It's been off and on. They've had votes. The union, led by the National Labor Relations Board, has overseen votes by workers at six of the seven properties who are in favor of union representation. Then it becomes, okay, they voted for represented by the culinary. Now the culinary and management have to sit down and negotiate a contract. Not happened, obviously. One other property, Red Rock Resort, the employees voted against union representation. And the culinary sued in federal court. And a federal judge in July said, no, station casinos, by offering this health and welfare package ahead of the vote, messed around with the election. And so the judge ruled that the workers now and the station casinos management have to negotiate a contract. Now that's being challenged, obviously, and it's being appealed in the National Labor Relations Board. Right now, there may have been votes in favor of the union, but there are no contracts between station casinos and the union.
0: And, And why is the union so intent on getting stations casino under their purview?
6: To represent the workers with a union contract will offer better wages, better health and welfare benefits. Station believes their health and welfare benefits are better than what the union can offer. Is, is
0: there a history here between the union and Station's Casino? It, it, it sounds kind of like both think that they're in the right here.
6: I mean, Station Casino started out as a... One casino company run by the Fertita family, the founder, Frank Fertita Jr., wasn't so much that it was anti-union, it was that he didn't want anybody coming between him and his employees. And he felt he had a better relationship with his employees that the union could provide. Then again, you know, remember this company has grown tremendously. Right now they have six properties open throughout Las Vegas, four closed during the pandemic, three have not been reopened, and another property, the Palms, has been sold. Mm-hmm. So it's a much different company than the family run business that it was back in the day with a lot more employees. So the union believes they can offer a better representation to the employees.
0: And what about as a whole, the, the history of Las Vegas's unions and the casinos and how they face off?
6: There's been labor peace here in this along the strip for years now. We had a strike in 1984. There have been a couple of one-off type labor dispute strikes, one that lasted almost seven years. With the Frontier Hotels, the longest labor strike in the history of the nation on the Strip, it ended when uh, the Frontier owners at the time sold the property to Phil Ruffin and he signed a contract with the union and the, and the, the strike ended. We had very few labor disputes in that sense. Contract negotiations over the years between the casino owners and the Culinary Union can sometimes get contentious, but in the end, they usually settle. So... I mean, we've pretty much had labor peace other than from 1984 which was the big citywide strike that made national headlines and was settled, but then the frontier strike that lasted seven years. So, I mean, we've pretty much seen labor peace between the gaming industry and the union.
0: So I, I also am curious, we're talking about the fertitas, which I, I believe are on the Forbes uh, billionaire list in the, in the, the culinary union now. It, it almost seems personal, right? It seems like there is kind of this, they feel attacked by the union and the union is upset that they're not, you know, willing to negotiate.
6: I think it has gotten personal in some ways. Now, the station casinos will say, well, the unions made it personal going after the Fertitta family. Back a decade ago, the Fertittas owned UFC and... The union was fighting UFC getting licensed in New York. That was like the one big state where they weren't like where UFC was a license. You know, they wanted to have big cards at Madison square garden and the union fought it. And it was ironic that the union was fighting it because New York was a very, labor-intensive, union-friendly state. The Culinary's Affiliate in New York had a contract with Madison Square Garden. That could have been uh, very lucrative for the the union at the time to to have these fights in in New York and Madison Square Garden. Now, they were unsuccessful because about four years later, after they they initiated this campaign against UFC, the laws changed in New York and the UFC was legalized there. But all the union did was was angered. The president of UFC, very vocal, very profane-laced, press conferences about the union and what they're doing with the Fertittas. And it was, it just got very, you know, there were things that got a little personal, it's gotten a little strange.
0: That was gaming reporter Howard Stutz talking to me. You can catch the next part of this history on the Culinary Union and Station Casinos feud on next week's episode.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to
0: thank Jerry Snyder, Eric Brooks, Zach Bright, and Howard Stutz for being on the show this
1: week. We'd also like to thank assistant editor Michelle Rindells and Riley Snyder, the dynamic duo who not only help us edit this very podcast, but also help edit the monthly newsletter, Soundcheck, which features extended interviews from the podcast and more.
0: If you want to help the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, cold fusion suggestions, cranberry juice, secrets, or whatever else you can think of at joey at the or jacob at the
1: Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Lance Conrad and original music from our own Joey Lovato.
0: Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host,
1: Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis.